Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 12. Sometimes a meal tells a story. I was talking with some friends this week from the nations of China and Brazil about how meals from their countries tell various stories. As Americans, we don't have quite as many, but we have a few. For example, if I told you that I was going to have black-eyed peas, what day of the year would it be? New Year's Day. Those little legumes tell a story that it is the beginning of a new year. Now, if you were gathered with friends and family, you're wearing sweaters while you ate a three-course meal of turkey and stuffing, green bean casserole, sweet potatoes, pecan and pumpkin pie, because you shouldn't have either or, but both and. What day have I just described? Thanksgiving. You see, these foods tell the story of how our nation began. They remind us of America's origin. On that first Thanksgiving, in the harvest of 1621, the Plymouth colonists gathered with the Wampanoag Indians to commemorate, to give thanks to God for His providence. Now, in all likelihood, they ate carrots and bread, perhaps with fish or deer or chicken. Scholars are pretty much unanimous on this, that they did not eat wild turkey. I know that burst some of your bubble, but turkey later would become a staple of the Thanksgiving meal. They definitely did not eat cranberries from a can <laughs> or drizzle whipped cream from a nozzle. Like, that's how some people do it. Other people. They did not gather to watch the Dallas Cowboys win yet another Thanksgiving game. But they did worship God for His providence through a feast. They traced every blessing back to its source, the maker of heaven and earth. They practiced Thanksgiving, and the meal told the story. This morning marks the final time that we will be in the book of Exodus this year. And like the last two pages of our annual calendar, we'll observe a couple of meals that hold incredible significance in the life of the people of God, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These ordained festivals were given by God so that every year His people would pause to thank the Lord for His blessings to rehearse and remember God's redemption and to tell the story of how God had shown His favor and power to His people. What I'd like to do with our text is simply walk through it and lead us as a church family in the practice of thanksgiving. I'd like to begin with this question. What are you thankful to the Lord for? Now, there will be celebrations around our nation that leave out that middle clause, just what are you thankful for, as if there were no object to the blessings that we've been given. But as Christians, the question is, what are you thankful to the Lord for? For some, it will be related to your health or your career, some financial provision, uh, news of a new baby. How great is it to dedicate these children to the Lord this morning? Perhaps it's spiritual growth or personal growth in your life or in the life of someone that you've been praying for for many years. 
Still for others, Thanksgiving is an opportunity to trust and thank the Lord for His faithfulness, even in the loss of some precious blessing. In Exodus chapter 12, 33, all the way to 13, 16, is the text we will be looking at this morning. And we arrive at a remarkable part of the story of Exodus. The day of deliverance from Egypt has finally come. And we witness the blessing of God poured out on His people. The event is so meaningful in the lives of of the Israelites that God gives them two different meals to remember His wondrous works. And He instructs them how then to pass this story of redemption down to their children and their children's children. What I'd like to do is highlight three practices from this Thanksgiving meal and the verses that surround it. First, to give thanks for the blessings of God. Second, to remember the salvation of God. And third, to tell of the wonders of God. Let me invite you, if you would, to stand your feet once more as we read together the first section of the scripture we're looking at. Exodus chapter 12, verses 33 to 42. This is God's holy and inerrant word, though written long ago, speaks to us today. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls still bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, For it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Would you be seated? Three practices from this Thanksgiving meal. The first practice we learn is to give thanks for the blessings of God. Chapter 12, 33 to 42. As we left off last week, we heard Pharaoh pleading with Moses and Aaron to leave Egypt as fast as possible. Now the entire nation of Egypt begs with them to get out for fear that the Lord's judgment might fall even harder. And we learn a few things about the Israelites in these verses. First, note that they were prepared. Verse 34 shows us. As Moses gave them the instructions for the Passover night, They were told not to use leaven in their bread. And so on the way out the door, 
They scooped up this unleavened bread, threw their kneading bowls on their shoulders, and headed out in a hurry. They were prepared for this because God had prepared them for it. We see also that they were obedient. Verse 37 tells us they had done what Moses had commanded them to do. You see, they had gone to the Egyptians and asked for all of their silver and gold jewelry and their 800 thread Egyptian cotton sheets. And as they went around asking for these finest things, the Egyptians just willingly give them whatever they asked for. This is a remarkable scene of the power of God changing the hearts of the Egyptians. Can you imagine these men and women and children who had lived as slaves, whose great-grandparents had lived as slaves, oppressed, owning nothing but being owned by another, and now going to those Egyptians and saying, give me what you got. And out of great joy, the Egyptians just say, here you go. How does that happen? God. God is how that happens. And the people were obedient. Notice that they were also victorious. They, um, <laughs> verse 36, do you remember uh, when we first started Exodus? I said there was a certain part where when we read about the people of God flourishing and multiplying, how when that was read publicly, people would cheer and clap out loud in thanksgiving to the Lord. I think chapter 12, verse 36, is a very fitting text for us to practice that again. Are you ready? I'm going to read this, and let's just see what happens. Kids, I expect you to lead the way. All right? Exodus chapter 12, verse 36 says, And thus they plundered the Egyptians. Yeah, they did. I heard a little voice. Keep at it, little guy. All right. Next. Oh, it was Cannon. Very good, son. The important point, as, as we see the people of God walk out of Egypt like a victorious army, is not how much wealth they left with, but the fact that they did. Only they were not the ones who fought the battle or won the spoils of war. The God of Israel fought for them. He performed miraculous signs and wonders, delivered them, and now leads them triumphantly out of the battlefield. What we find in these verses is a documentation of the faithfulness of God. When the Israelites were in the chains of slavery, they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard their cry. He remembered his covenant with them to be their God, for them to be his people, that he would bless them and multiply them. That's first recorded in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. As the book of Exodus begins, we were told there were 70 sons of Abraham living in Egypt. But look how God has kept his word. Um, there's evidence in this little, in verse 37, which is an end-of-year report. The growth over these 400 years tells us that through all the oppression that the Israelites endured, their progress has been nothing but up and to the right. 
We were told in Exodus 1-7 that the people of Israel were fruitful, that they multiplied, and the land was filled with them. Now, 600,000 sons of Abraham were walking out of Egypt. And if you add women and children to that number, most scholars believe that is between 2 and 3 million people. God has kept his word. God has multiplied his people. This was God's plan from the beginning multiply his people and God never changes his plans God had also promised to bless his people financially as they left Egypt in Genesis 15 13 God told Abram all of this was going to come to pass that his offspring would be sojourners in a land that was not theirs that they would be servants there they would be afflicted for 400 years God had foretold all of this but he promised that he would bring judgment on the nation that they served And afterward, they would come out with great possessions. What we have witnessed over these few months is a span of 400 years. What we have witnessed is the promises of God fulfilled before our very eyes. Now the Israelites are being sent out from Egypt with great possessions. But even in the book of Exodus, we heard this beforehand. We knew this was going to happen. At the beginning of this incredible story, God told Moses in Exodus 3, 20 through 22, that after God stretched out his hand, which we've looked at for the last couple of weeks, and performed all his signs and wonders in Egypt, that his people would not leave empty-handed. And here the text says after 400 years, 430 to be exact, The children of God leave the bondage of Pharaoh to worship the Lord. They were redeemed by the Lord's mighty hand and went out from Egypt dripping with the riches of Egypt, their arms full of the blessings of God. As I spent time with this passage this week, I I kept coming back to the thought of how Moses in this book is documenting the faithfulness of God to his people. He's documenting the faithfulness of God to his people. As God spoke through him, he recorded for us who God is, what God is like, and what God did in redeeming his people long ago. That's what Moses is doing in this great letter. I would like to encourage us, specifically as we head into Thanksgiving week, but far beyond, to make it our practice to document the faithfulness of God in our day, in our lives, to tell the stories of how God has miraculously worked, the ways that we have seen his mighty hand at work in the world. So this week, I want to encourage you to allow your thoughts to play back and to record the things that God has done in your life. The marvelous deeds God has done in your family. The miraculous way that God has birthed and sustained our church and what God is doing both in our community and around the world. And oh, give thanks to God forever for all he's done, for all he's given. For every grace, let us bring every praise. To the giver of all, give thanks. The second practice we learn from this passage is to remember the salvation of God. We read in 1242 how the Lord kept watch over the Israelites on the night of Passover 
Now there's a turn of phrase, and he says he's calling his people to keep watch each year in remembrance of what the Lord has done. Like our modern American calendar is anchored around the holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas, the Jewish calendar here is reset, reoriented around two meals. The Lord gave his people these meals in order that they would never forget how his mighty hand had rescued them. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, two different festivals that actually overlap one another to tell one great story of God's salvation. Here's what I want us to think through as we look at both Passover and Unleavened Bread. The Passover meal tells God's story of salvation from death, uniquely from death. The Feast of Unleavened Bread tells the story of God's salvation from slavery. So we're looking at the same act through two different lenses. God uh, didn't uh, punish his people, but saved them through the blood of the Lamb, and he set them free from the oppression of Egypt. So first, the Passover meal tells the story of God's salvation from death. We looked last week at the importance of the lamb who was slain as a substitute for the people of God. And because the blood was spread on the doorframe of each house, the angel of death passed over the people of God. But there are other instructions given to this feast. They were to eat all of the lamb, leaving no leftovers, as they remembered how God had provided a spotless lamb to die in their place. They ate unleavened bread so that they could look back and remember how swiftly the Lord had delivered them from Egypt. The meal was garnished with bitter herbs, which represented 400 years of bitter slavery. And the whole Passover meal commemorates God's salvation from death through the spotless lamb. The Feast of Unleavened Bread tells the story of God's salvation from slavery. Look with me at Exodus 13, verses 6 and 7. Here, Moses explains to the people what they are to do for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. Kids, I'm so sorry. I've used the word leaven and unleavened. Y'all probably, like me, have no idea what that means because you don't cook yet. I'm into my 40s, and I still don't cook. So let me explain what leaven is. It's this, it's this bit of, um, um, help me, yeast that you would put into bread. So I want you to just like close your eyes and imagine smelling Sister Schubert's rolls. Oh, I can't wait. It didn't smell like that. It didn't look like that. It didn't rise. These, these breads just stayed flat like a cracker, like the communion wafer that we take when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Unleavened. That's what that word means. And for those of us who also don't cook, you're welcome for that little cooking lesson. Moses explains why this is the case in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 3. Why were they supposed to keep this memorial? He says that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt, that you may remember the day when you came out of Egypt. 
These feasts were given by God so His people would continually remember how God had saved them and continually identify with the people of God saying, that's me too. See, each feast does more than just help Israel remember what God had done in the past. This isn't just a memorial service. These meals are reenactments of the story of God's salvation. And the people of God are not merely observers. No, they are participants in the storytelling. Similarly, the Lord has given us a meal. Jesus left us a meal in which we remember the salvation of God. This Passover meal was but a shadow of what we now know as the Lord's Supper. And like Israel, we celebrate the Lord's Supper not merely as observers, but as participants in the story. That bread and that cup remind us of what Christ has done for us. Uh, the elders have decided throughout the Advent season, so that starting uh, next Sunday and, and uh, going for four weeks, that we'll celebrate communion every week. And we'll do so in a sense of longing of what the blood of Christ promises us in his return. And so as we do, I just want to encourage you, when you take the bread and you take the cup week by week, to think back of how the Lord has saved you from the death that you deserved because of your sin. And how the Lord showed mercy to you, bringing you out of the slavery of sin and into the freedom and light of the gospel. It was at a Passover feast 2,000 years ago that Jesus gathered with his disciples, gave them the meal of the unleavened bread and a cup of wine as signs of the new covenant in his body and in his blood to do this in remembrance of him. To remember that he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Remember the salvation of God. That's what these meals call us to. And the final practice that this text summons us is to tell of the wonders of God. Now here I'm stitching together chapter 13 verses 1 and 2. And verses 8 through 16. And if we, if we stitch them together, what we find is a call to dedicate children to the Lord and to disciple the coming generation. I've just got to pause right there because our practice of preaching God's word is just book by book, verse by verse. And um, in all honestly, honesty, it was not planned that on Thanksgiving Sunday we would be looking at these two delicious meals and also about discipling the next generation on the very day that we dedicate children of the Trails Church unto the Lord. But here we are. In this just commitment to go verse by verse through the Bible, the Lord just sometimes reminds us of this. So I just want to take this little aside to say, let's, let's keep at this as a people. Let's keep opening the book week by week and looking at what it has to say and allow the Lord to lead us. The first thing the Lord says to his people when they've been set free from bondage, is how they must look back and look forward. They're to look back in the observation of these meals and also in this ceremony given for the firstborn child. But linked to that is also this forward look to disciple the coming generations in the way of the Lord. 
And I want to give us two words to hang our thoughts on as we look at these final set of verses. The two words are dedication and discipleship. Dedication and discipleship. This all has to do with future generations of passing the promises of God down to our children. The idea of dedication is introduced in 13, 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Now the idea of setting aside the firstborn is a way for the people of God to give thanks to the Lord for the blessing of life, for the blessing of a child, and to commit that child as an offering unto the Lord, like we see Hannah do with Samuel. Like an echo of Passover, this dedication also is a reminder of the angel of death that passed over the firstborn of each house of Israel. And by God's mercy, the lamb that died in the place of the child. So this dedication reminds the people of God of his great mercy toward them. So, dedication. There's also the idea of discipleship. Now this is everywhere throughout the story. Uh, both of the first generation and all the way to ongoing generations to you and me. Specifically, the notion of parents discipling their children in the ways of God. In all of this, the Passover meal, the feast of unleavened bread, and the dedication of the firstborn, we see the importance of passing on to the next generation the wonders of God. Look with me at chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Now let's remember who's Moses talking to. Future generations. How many generations were actually brought out of Egypt? Only those living. So there's this identification with the people of God with this deliverance, with this Passover. Verse 9. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. If you let your eyes fall down to Exodus thirteen fourteen, he continues this idea. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. We find in each of these verses a call to parents to disciple the future generations, to disciple our sons and daughters, to tell the story of God's salvation to them and to instruct them in the way. This is almost like a reverse catechesis happening. Like our fifth and sixth graders go through the New City Catechism, learning what truth is by question and answer. But who's asking the question here, parent or child? Is the parent or the child asking the question? The child is asking the parent the question. And what is the question they're asking? Why are we doing this? What does this mean? Why are we eating crackers all week instead of Sister Schubert? What's happening? And the parents are instructed to tell their children exactly what's happening. Uh, this reminds me of when Jamie came to faith in Christ. She would sit in church, and every time the Lord's Supper would come by, she would not have it because she had not trusted in Christ and been baptized yet. And the Lord used that just time by time. 
chipping away at her beautiful but still cold, dead, and sin heart, <laughs> that he's gloriously redeemed. And God used that as her parents told her, well, that is for a meal for Christians. And when you become a Christian, you'll share in this meal with us. We still see these things happening today. Kids, you may have questions for your parents. And I want to encourage you, go home and ask your parents the questions, that even that you're afraid to ask. God is bigger than your biggest questions. You can go to him with anything. And parents, to tell the story of God's salvation. We'll come back to that in a minute. But our passage ends by talking about having these realities that the Lord had done in saving his people like a mark on your hand or his frontlets between your eyes. Now, if you're familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, which tells us the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and then also to pass that on to your children, that's where you're most familiar with it. But here it is, the first time in the Scripture. Basically, the Lord's saying, I want you to keep what I've done at the front of your thoughts. It's not about setting up legalistic to-do lists. It's about rehearsing the ways of God. So in the same way that I wear a ring to remind myself of the covenant that I've made with Jamie Lynn, or even these four little bracelets that my kids have made that remind me to pray for them, these things are to be reminders. These meals are continual reminders of who the Lord is, of what the Lord has done, and why he is to be worshipped. The Lord wants his people to keep redemption on the front of their thoughts and tell of his wonders to the coming generations. So parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, adopted uncles and aunts, Adults of the Trails Church who just took an oath a moment ago to help disciple the next generation. I think there's a unique challenge for each of us in this. And I want to just encourage you sometime beginning today throughout this holiday season to set aside a portion of time and you tell to the next generation, whatever that looks like, what God has done in your heart. What God has done in you. Uh, parents, some of your kids don't know your testimony. Grandparents, some of your kids don't know your testimony. And it could be that the Lord Jesus would work through you, sharing God's grace at work in your heart to breathe to life a young heart still dead in sin. Let's take this seriously. Let's not miss these opportunities. Tell of the wonders of God. So as we conclude, I want to end by exhorting my brothers and sisters in Christ from this text. But before we get there, I want to speak directly to any of you who have not yet repented of your sin and believed in Jesus for your salvation. Uh, this, This passage is just dripping with promises and goodness of God. The blessings that God gives to his people. The salvation that God gives to his people. And you might think, I don't think that's for me. Where does that leave me? Well, if you've yet to trust in Christ, that leaves you outside of the promises and the provision of God. But you don't have to stay there. I want you to look at chapter 12, verse 38. Chapter 12, verse 38 contains this phrase, a mixed multitude also went up with them. Now, do you know what this mixed multitude mentioned is? This means that some of them are biological sons and daughters of Abraham. But not all of them. 
We'll see many, many that were not born biological sons of Abraham, but have become his sons and daughters by faith. If you look at the verses 43 through 49 of chapter 12, Moses gives instruction on what to do if you're not a person that already belongs to God. He says to be circumcised, and then you're welcome at the meal. Be circumcised. This is the sign of faith. And then you're welcomed at the meal. Now, it wasn't circumcision that saved them. It was faith in the promises of God that saved them. And then they're welcomed in. In a similar way, this is how we think of baptism. We are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And then we are baptized as a sign of our faith and welcomed into the people of God. And then we share in the meal of God. We see a great symmetry between what we have. This is like a little ecclesiology right here in Exodus 12. Circumcision, and then you're welcome at the table. I counted with the people of God. Baptism, and then you're welcomed at the table with the people of God. So, if you have yet to believe in Christ, that leaves you outside the people, still in the Egypt of spiritual slavery. But I want you to see that none of us naturally belong to the family of God. None of us were born sons and daughters of God. We have been attached to it by faith in Christ, grafted into the body of Christ, into the family of God by Jesus. And so today, if you remain in the slavery of your sin, I encourage you to repent of it, to flee from it, to call out to God to run to Christ with faith and he will run to you. He will forgive you and cleanse you of your unrighteousness. He will save you. And so now to those of us who are in Christ, as we both conclude our study of Exodus for this year and begin Thanksgiving week, this is more a prayer, more an exhortation that we would be a people centered on the goodness of our God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the heart of the Passover, at the heart of the feast of unleavened bread, at the center of the dedication of the firstborn son is the idea of substitution. Substitution. And it's not until we see Christ that all of the pieces of the puzzle form a wonderful picture. While the Israelites were sent out of Egypt with blessings untold, in Christ, you and I have been given blessings untold. Only theirs were material, ours are spiritual. And there's even purpose of God giving the Egyptians these wealth. They wouldn't just hang on to them as possessions. They would actually use this to build a tabernacle. In just a few more chapters, we'll get there. They stewarded the spiritual gifts of God. You and I, in Christ, have received every spiritual blessing. They are yours and mine in Jesus Christ. And while the Israelites were redeemed from death through the blood of the Lamb, you and I also have been given redemption in Christ through the blood of the Lamb. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And while the Israelites were told to tell the wonders of God to coming generations, you and I have been commissioned to go and tell the wonders of God like this. 
Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then the great promise, oh, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So brothers and sisters, this Thanksgiving week and throughout our lives, may we give thanks for the blessing of God that we have received in the gospel. May we remember the salvation of God that we have been given in the gospel. And may we tell of the wonders of God made known to us in the gospel. And let's pray for his help. Oh God, we call upon you as the author and finisher of our faith, the one who invites us to know communion with you. I thank you for the feast you've given us in your word We could take it and eat and be satisfied with the bread of life, the fountain of wisdom. So would you use it to nourish us as your people? Would you lead it to convict and to draw those who are not yet your people? And in all things, let us be those who give thanks. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.